Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, then we are up as a podcast. You're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. A warm welcome. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Tuesday, the 28th of November. Coming up on our program, the Implats Mine Tragedy. We'll look at safety standards in the industry. Is government being fully transparent about what stage load shedding we're at right now? There's a shocking report out on conditions at state hospitals and a right of reply from the Department of Health. And ahead of World AIDS Day, we'll look at treatment progress being made in South Africa. At least 11 miners have died at the Impala Platinum Mine in the northwest province. The incident occurred after a cable malfunctioned, and that caused a cage carrying workers to plunge downwards. Now, some key aspects from a statement that we received from Implats this morning. A further 75 employees were injured in the accident. The mine rescue operation, we understand, is complete. All 86 employees are accounted for. The mine tells us it's presently in the process of informing and liaising with impacted families in consultation with the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union. Implat says it's also working closely with the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy and all mining operations at Impala Rustenburg have been suspended today. Obviously, the tragedy has raised the question of mine safety in South Africa and we're hoping in a short time to talk to uh, David van Veek, who is a mining research and uh, mining researcher and analyst. But before we get there, as the pain of load shedding continues and it's costing the country something in the region of a billion rand a day, there are suggestions, strongly denied by government, that we have been at times hit by stage eight. That's beyond the reported stage six. More now from Mtunzi Lutuli, Managing Director at the Lutuli Corporation that is involved in the energy space. Mtunzi, firstly, do you believe government has been fully transparent about the extent of load shedding stages? Uh, uh, Good good day, um, Jeremy. Look, I always rely on the numbers, okay, uh, to assess what uh, the politicians or anybody else says. Now, the last time I checked the numbers, uh, they uh, indicated that we were on stage six and not higher stages. Now, uh, a lot of people within the uh, city of Joburg's um, area of supply uh, reported longer hours of load shedding okay which in my view may have been a result of the fact that uh the management of the um load shedding within the area of the city of Joburg was recently transferred from escom to the city of Joburg, and they had teething problems so it could be that the longer hours are a result of that rather than more mega, uh, more, mm. more megawatts that have been load shared. 
And just to put on the record, uh, some residents in Johannesburg complaining of outages of over 12 hours in a single day. So let's move on. Despite numerous interventions from government, it would seem that there is no significant improvement in electricity supply. In your opinion then, Mtunzi, why have these measures failed to yield the desired results and results that government has been promising us for some time? The, the first reason is that, um, and I'm not going to go all the way back to when we advised government and government didn't listen, but the problem is that even after that, we really did not commit to building sufficient generation capacity, okay? We have been sort of doing it uh, half-heartedly. Let me give you a, a, a very good example of how one needs to approach these sorts of things. If you look at China, for instance, China in the early to mid-2000s was building about 50 gigawatts of uh, capacity every 12 to 18 months. That's an ESCOM every 12 to 18 months. That's how you need to approach these things uh, if you really want your economy not to be uh, uh, constrained, you know, by lack of electricity. Now, what have we done? We, uh, I think starting in 20, was it 2013, we embarked on the renewables procurement program, right? Now, that's a rats and mice, uh, that's what I call it. It's a rats and mice approach to procuring power. Um, And let me explain what I'm trying to say. One unit at Kuburg gives you about 920 um, um, megawatts. Mm. It's it's close to one gigawatt. That's one unit. Now, uh, solar plants, for instance, uh, they come in in various sizes, but the bigger ones are in the region of 50 megawatts. Now, to get the same amount of power from those plants that you get uh, uh, from a cubic unit, you would have to procure 20 of them, 20, just to get the same output as one unit uh, 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 at Kuburg. And if we have to build about 10,000 megawatts, how many of these 50 megawatt plants are you going to have to procure? And then you have bid window after bid window after bid window. You know, and also even after getting the thousand megawatts, it's only the capacity. The energy that you get out of them would still be less than what you get at Kuburg because um, they have low capacity factors. They operate for twenty-five to thirty percent of the time. So, they, they, so the energy output, even though you would have achieved the same capacity, but the energy output would still be far lower. So this is this is this is the uh, second problem that uh, is contributing to us not having enough uh, generation. So capacity. let me ask you this question then: Do we need to change focus or balance? Do we need to look more at fixing power stations themselves that are in a state of disrepair, or do we need to put more money, effort, and capacity behind renewables? Okay, uh, it's the first one, uh, Jeremy. The low-hanging fruit. Uh, right now in South Africa uh, is one, fixing the units that um, are not working at ESCOM. Some of them were stripped of parts to be used in other units because of internal procurement uh, problems, you know, the procurement was taking too long and then they would go and strip some units 
to uh, to use those parts in, in 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 other units that were looking a little bit healthier. Those units need to be refurbished and brought back online, right. and we need to allocate. A, a, a money to do that that's a low-hanging fruit it's the quickest thing because those units would take i don't know depending on their state and they would vary from one unit to the next but you know you, you a unit would typically take six months to properly refurbish and bring back online okay and so that's the low-hanging fruit the other one is to finish gusila properly and medupi because those units would add much needed megawatts and it's big units 800 megawatts you know that's the low hanging fruit if we can do that then we won't have a, a load sharing problem uh, you, you won't even need to continue with this renewable procurement program right. Latuli, i'm yeah. going to i'm going to leave it at that point uh, regrettably time is against us but thank you very much indeed for the assessment Ntunzi Latuli, managing director at the Latuli corporation you're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, let's return now to the Impala Platinum Mine tragedy in the northwest. At least 11 miners have died. Joining us now is David Van Veek, uh, who is a mining research analyst. David, a very warm welcome to you. As this uh, tragedy unfolds, what's your initial assessment of uh, what went wrong? Well, um, the winch cable broke on the cages that take workers down. And they plunged down the mine shaft. Uh, I don't know how far down they were before they started plunging. But the fact that 11 people are dead and 35 people are seriously injured and we might have more fatalities before the day is over uh, indicates that it was very serious. Now, I know that for some time now, NGM and AMCO and so on have complained about uh, the Mine Health and Safety Inspectorate not effectively investigating and checking on winch cables, which are incredibly important. Your life hangs by a thread, basically, where every time you go down, and if that winch cable breaks, uh, the tragedy is really bad. Um, um, and, you know, so that is, that, is, that, is, that is what we think happened. But we also note that uh, over public holidays, uh, especially over Christmas and so on, there's always a spike in mine accidents and fatalities in South Africa. And that is because workers are chasing bonuses, and very often the the, the safety uh, officers that are going down with each team are told to ignore safety issues because the miners are chasing productivity bonuses so they can take more money home. That might be a contributing factor as well, you know. So uh, between between those two things. The other thing, of course, is that those are incredibly old mines. The mines around Rustenburg started in the 1930s, and clearly um, maintenance uh, is important, and as the resource declines and costs of extracting the mineral increases, so less and less money is paid on health and safety. So having outlined those issues in terms of safety protocol, what questions need to be asked urgently and what answers need to be given? Well, I think that um, we are concerned and we've expressed this concern very often. We've, con- we've expressed this concern very often that, um, you know, the Department of Mineral Resources is so uh, desperate to sustain investment in mining when there's a, a resource decline in the and we should allow these mines to gradually go out of life rather than trying to sustain them. Um, you know, um, if a mine is no longer profitable, don't cut the health and safety spend 
so that you can maintain the profitability of the mine. Rather let the mine, uh, you know, close down and rehabilitate it or, or, or repurpose it for other purposes and so on, than what you uh, cut back on health and safety and environmental spend and things like that, because that's a recipe for disaster in this country. So it would seem to me that the culture of safety that uh, the industry tells us it's adhering to and is maintaining uh, within the sector itself is, is, is simply lip service. That's the suggestion that you're making. Well, yes, I think that I think that the 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 fact of the matter is that our mines are far less safe than Australian mines or Canadian mines and so on, uh, simply because uh, in those countries workers are far more valued than what they are in South Africa. You know, our system is based on a cheap labour system. Our our workers in our mines get uh, by a factor of ten times less than what an Australian or Canadian worker gets in much more difficult and, and dangerous circumstances. You know, um, and 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 so until we actually begin to value the people who 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 create the wealth from our minerals, uh, we are going to have these kinds of fatalities. The other thing which is contributing, of course, is that we've lost 34,000 jobs in the last six months through retrenchments on the mines. Various big mining companies have announced retrenchments, and uh, this morning I hear that even Arcelor in, 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 in KwaZulu-Natal has announced another 3,400 job losses there in the steel industry. Um, and these job losses, are, you know, are, are, are a factor of a declining industry, but it also is a factor of uh, tumbling infrastructure around mines and operations and so on. You know, you hear iron mines uh, retrenching people because the railway system isn't working properly and so on. The ports are contested, the, the, the minerals can't get out of the country and so on. You know, so uh, you, you are having a, a, an accumulation of factors that actually uh, will make mining increasingly hazardous if we don't take care of it. So what sort of answer then would you expect from Impala Platinum? What would its next move need to be? Well, Impala Platinum will have to shut down that mine. They will have to uh, make it safe first. They would have to investigate the cause. Um, and, uh, uh, well, it is not just for Impala Platinum, it's for the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy because the DMRE will have to send an inspectorate out there and see what went wrong. And if indeed it was that the cables were very old and they were not being maintained, as, as UMCO and the unions are suggesting, um, then, then someone must be held liable for that. Uh, the inspector who didn't do the inspection, and of course, then the 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 mine management that are overseeing the operation, uh, you know, for not paying attention to safety. David van Wijk, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at midday for all your up-to-date stories. Ahead of World AIDS Day this week, the Human Sciences Research Council announcing key findings from the 6th South African National HIV Prevalence, Incidence and Behaviour Survey and the percentage of all people living with HIV in South Africa has decreased from 14% in 2017 to just under 13 last year. More now from Dr. Sean Eurster, Senior Research Manager in the Public Health Societies and Belonging Research Division at the HSRC. Dr. Eurster is one of the principal investigators in the study. And firstly then, what factors do you believe have contributed to this decrease, albeit very small? Look, it's the first time um, we've been doing the study since 2002. This is the first survey and it's the sixth in the series where we have not seen an increase in HIV prevalence. 
every previous survey we have seen a slight increase. So on a positive note, it looks like HIV prevalence has stabilized in the country. As you said, it's now 12.7 as compared to 14% in 2017. But the number is still very big. This 12.7 translates into 7.8 million people living with HIV. It's 100,000 fewer people as compared to 2017. So on a positive note, it looks like HIV prevalence has stabilized in the country, but it's still a very Mm. large number of people that are currently living with HIV. What factors do you think have contributed to the decrease? I think the investment in um, the response of government and NGOs working in the field has definitely um, made an impact. We can see that the age group that was targeted, you know, the young females, when we compare the two survey rounds, we see a significant decrease in this population. So clearly, the interventions that were done, it's working. And also when we look at the, you know, the 95, 95, 95 treatment targets, you know, when 95% of people that are positive um, should know their status, you know, 95% should be on art. Um, and 95% should be viral suppressed. We have seen those figures, especially for viral load, increase dramatically between the two surveys. And that means that if people are positive and they're virally suppressed, the transmission of HIV decreases. So clearly that has played a role in this drop. You know, that HIV is not um, being transmitted as it was a few years ago. But there are still significant challenges that remain. What are those and how do we tackle them? Look, the big challenge is that not everyone is virally suppressed. And as I mentioned, if you're virally suppressed, the chances of transmitting HIV decreases, right? So you have over a million people that's HIV positive, they're living with HIV, right? But they're not virally suppressed. So the challenge is to get those people on treatment so that they can achieve, you know, viral suppression. People are also um, living longer now, it's longer on treatment. So it's getting those people that's on art to continue taking their, um, their treatment, you know, it is lapses to, um, you know, link them to care. So that will be a continued journey and that cannot stop. The survey also shows higher HIV prevalence among young women compared to men in the same age groups. Um, Explain to me why that's the case and what interventions are needed on that front. Yeah, so traditionally, although we say there's a decrease and it's stabilized, the areas where we had the biggest um, burden of HIV continues. And as you rightly say, compared to any other survey that we did, HIV prevalence is much higher among females as compared to males. In some cases, depending on the age group, for example, the 25 to 29-year-old age group, women are almost 20% um, positive compared to only 6% of males. So there is still this huge difference between the transmission, I mean, the prevalence of HIV. And I think this is why government and NGOs have focused specifically on females to target interventions looking at females. And there are different factors, you know, um, one of the factors that we always looked at in the survey is that young women tend to have older partners and men HIV prevalence increases with age. So if they're the same age, you can see there's a big difference between prevalence. But as men become older, you know, then prevalence also increases. So age mixing is a contributing factor. Also, um, females biology also contributes to easy acquiring HIV. Then we also look at condom use. Condom use is much lower among females as compared to males. So these are the factors, and I think interventions um, over the past few years have focused on this group, and we can see a drop. Between the two surveys, we have seen a drop, although it's still very high. This discrepancy between males and females, it's still very high. So having said that, do we need a change of thinking as far as interventions are concerned among that cohort? Look, they will continue, and especially these interventions are uh, monitored, you know, um, over time to see the impact. We can see the impact in our survey. I mean, clearly there's a significant difference between the two survey years, but it's still high, 
it's, as I'm saying, especially the 25 to 29 year old age group, that's currently sitting at almost 20%. And for males, at 6%. We were always concerned that, you know, lots of interventions were focused on, on females. And we always had the concern that, you know, you're leaving again the males behind. Because we have seen that when you look at the cascade, um, very few men or less men actually know that they're HIV positive. Um, we are seeing that also changing now. So um, at least they're getting men also to go for treatment. Um, men have also in- improved their um, viral load suppression. So I think it's not only one thing that can be done. Mm. You know, it takes um, a comprehensive package to focus on these interventions. You know, like um, if people are, the main thing is if as soon as somebody tests positive, you know, is to link them to care. And I think any intervention that um, once you find somebody that's positive in the community or at your healthcare system, to trace them, to make sure that they continue, um, you know, what they care. Just a final one then, the findings of the survey, how should it be informing the national strategic plan for HIV, TB and STIs in South Africa? Look, I think for, for us, it's the, you know, one of the aims, the big aim to actually confront um, HIV is looking at the cascade. And we presented the, um, the figures for that cascade. And you can see there are still gaps. What's really been impressive is that viral load has increased um, significantly in males and in females. Where there are still gaps, fewer men know that they're positive. So that's already a gap that you can identify. Mm. The same with females. The aim is to have 95% of um, people that are positive, they should know that they're positive. That has not been achieved yet. Then also on art, the art one, you know, with people, they, they, they're positive and they're on treatment. That one is the lowest in the cascade for females. So getting people, um, when they're positive, getting them on treatment, it's still um, important. It's positive that it's stabilized, but the right. challenge is so huge going ahead that you can't take your foot off the, the gas now. You have to continue with the gains that have been made over the last five years. Dr. Sean Yuster, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. A report from the Freedom Front Plus political party has detailed findings on the state of public hospitals in South Africa. By way of background, the report was compiled from 273 complaints submitted to the party in response to its invitation to patients to share their experiences at public health facilities in the year up to August. Joining us now is Philippus van Staden, Freedom Front Plus spokesperson on health. And Mr. van Staden, based on the complaints that you received then, what are the main findings, very briefly? Yeah, the main findings is it paints a disturbing picture of human rights abuses uh, at a decline in service delivery and infrastructure, as well as staff's uh, incompetence and indifferent attitude towards the plight and suffering mm-hmm. of patients. This report also contains countless states of inhuman treatment and negligence, which resulted in the death of many people. And uh, as you have seen in our report, the graphic details and photos are also contained in the report, which is very disturbing. Can you give um, me one or uh, two examples? Yes, uh, one example was an incident that transpired at the National District Hospital in Bloemfontein, where a pregnant woman in labor's cries for help were reportedly simply ignored. The baby was stillborn after which it was placed in a medical waste bag and thrown into a waste bin before the very eyes of its shocked parents. And in another case, in the Joe Moralong Memorial Hospital describes uh, how a person's leg was amputated with nothing but an epidural. He was able to hear and even smell the bone being sawn through. Uh, he said after a while, the feeling started to return to his leg and they reportedly begged doctors to stop. But they simply continued mm. with the procedure. And anesthesics wasn't only administered after the pain 
became absolutely unbearable when his nerves were being served and so forth. So these and many other examples amount to serious accusations against this government that has no empathy for the suffering of the sick. And I think it simultaneously serves as irrefutable proof that the national health insurance is doomed to fail and because government is not even able to manage the current system properly. You know? So what's, what's going on here? Why do you think some hospitals are in such a deplorable state? The department is in a lot of trouble. There's a huge shortage of doctors and nurses. I think we said now, if I can remember correctly, the shortage of nurses is standing now at 160,000. For professional doctors, it's standing at 30,000 currently. We have a huge backlog of medical procedures for about 175,000 procedures. You wait seven years for a hip replacement. Uh, There's a lot of medical legal claims against the department. This financial year, we're currently in a stance at 64 billion. Last year it was 125 billion, which has not been resolved. So it's looking at a, a medical legal claims budget of 200 billion rand, which is exceeding the department's budget at this stage. Mm. So there's there's a lot of complaints. Our, our pharmacies in our state hospitals is running dry. I literally received complaints this past week of people who can't get medicines at clinics or at hospital uh, pharmacies because the state don't simply pay the providers, and so there's no stock available. So Mr. Van Stan, you also system. you you also talk about cases of sexual abuse in hospitals what is happening and how prevalent are these incidents now we had one complaint in this, which is also in detail to me the support of a woman described when she was examined by the doctor and suddenly started to touch touch uh, uh, on, on her private parts and stuff and she just slapped his hand away look you must listen not all doctors are bad not all nurses are bad but there are these cases this certain group of people, uh, and it is, is across the board, they're really not in the look uh, at this at this point of view for to to helping the patients, the oath they took when they they become doctors and stuff. So it's really a big problem in our system. It it mustn't be there. The system is mm. cor- it's, it's, it's corrupt. You know, it's it's really really bad in the public system. Of I, I want to I want to know at this point, having published the report, whether you've had any response or acknowledgement from government or health authorities. I haven't heard anything from the president, or the minister, or health, or the department. All that I see saw in the uh, in the news last Thursday was the department has issued a small two-line uh, thing that said complainants must realise that there are suggestion boxes at hospitals and they must use that system. I mean, it's ridiculous, really. I haven't seen anything in the media um, yesterday. I have to look this morning again. But personally, to myself, I have no response from government or department now. What do you want the South African Human Rights Commission to do? The Human Rights Commission must come with a decision to say what is exactly the problem, the root causes in our system, and then what we want to see from this, there must be justice for these people who have suffered losses of their families. Medical professionals must start to step forward to get a system in place which they must design, not us as politicians. Medical professionals must design the system to get adequate health care to all South Africans in public and private sector. All what we as politicians must do is implement it as law. That's it. We can't, um, you must remember the NSI bill is written by ANC politicians. It's running by ANC officials in, in the department. That is a problem. The medical professionals in this country mm. is for people who know what is the industry, is, is needed in the industry, and they must write this new system, and we must simply implement it. That's it. We can root out the corruption and get the administration straight again, all that stuff. But the medical professionals are the people who must be the designers of a right. health system for South Africa. We must start from scratch. Philippus yes. van Staden from the Freedom Front Plus, thank you very much.
All right, listening to that conversation and with a right of reply, we're joined now by Foster Mohali from the Department of Health. Mr. Mohali, first of all, have you reviewed that report and what are your initial reactions to the findings, if in fact you have? Uh, uh, good afternoon to you, Ejeri. Yes, we have informally received the report through the, the media. Uh, we have not uh, officially received the report uh, from those who have compiled it, uh, which is the Freedom Front Plus, but that did not stop us from uh, going through the report. We are going to, we are currently studying the report and try to uh, investigate further. We are not going to rubbish the report precisely because it was conducted by political party with a political motive. But uh, we, of course, we understand the, uh, the position of uh, the political party on this report. Uh, but we are not going to rubbish the report. We are going to further investigate. But also, unfortunately, they are not telling us in the report uh, in those uh, cases to say, did they try to get the side of uh, the health facility or the health of the department, the side of the health department in those cases so that we are able to know what actions have been taken by the department in those cases. So unfortunately, some of these uh, allegations, like your stockouts and all those things, we have not received uh, any reports to suggest that there's some med- medication stockouts in any of our facilities because we've got a system uh, where we're able to check the stock levels of uh, medications from any of our health right. facilities. Mr. Mahani, let, let's, let's not focus on the stockouts. Uh, let's focus yes. on two incidents that uh, the Freedom Front Plus outlined. One was the uh, baby that was stillborn that was thrown into a waste bin. The second was a man who was undergoing an amputation and he was conscious at the time and could smell the uh, the, the, the bone being uh, removed from his limb or from his body. Uh, these are shocking allegations. Uh, surely you need to move with speed as far as that is concerned. No, definitely. And I said that we are not going to uh, uh, a report we are going to we are currently going through the report and this, these are some of the incidences that we already uh, uh, captured uh, we just already perused in the report we are going to take this up with the relevant health facilities uh, and health departments in the province by, by when mr mahali when when are you going to do this and when can we expect some, uh, or, or, some already, response from soon, you? as soon as we have uh, received this report uh, i think last week through the media we have shared with our colleagues in the provinces to say please while at national we are trying to peruse the report please try to go through this report and try to identify these incidences try to further and you and you're putting and, you're putting pressure on them no doubt no definitely we we take this uh, allegation seriously because when, uh, when you we hear care about the less of the, when okay. you hear stories like this uh, you must be shocked though surely Look, yeah, with any story around uh, the health of our people, because we put the health of our people first, so definitely we are shocked uh, and we take this uh, uh, seriously. We are not wasting any time to ensure that we'll be able to respond according to be able to reach out to those uh, uh, victims uh, as soon as we establish all the facts. Mr. Mahali, how can you tell me that you take the health of your people seriously when we hear stories like this? Look, for now, look, we, we understand that uh, we, we are experiencing the challenges uh, in the public health system, but uh, some of these stories just we read uh, in the media, we don't just take them lightly. Of course, we have to investigate further. We can't just uh, decide, make a decision based on the media reports. We have to further investigate in order to find what could have happened and what did the facilities and the authorities do in those uh, uh, incidences. And when there's ne- where there is negligence, uh, hopefully there would be uh, a criminal outcome as a result of this. Definitely, where there's some negligence, uh, those who were involved will suffer, the, uh, will have to uh, uh, account for their actions. How does the department plan to address allegations of sexual abuse 
allegedly by doctors within your institutions? No, definitely. We, we all, in fact, whether the sexual abuse, whether it happens in our facility, whether it happens outside at home on the street, we condemn such. So encourage in, anyone sexual abuse to uh, report the matter to the police in order for the police to investigate and as the department uh, will be able to provide uh, our side of the story and comply with the police investigation and you'll be no doubt reaching out to the freedom front plus to get more information from the party that has spent a lot of time uh, compiling that report before we reach out to them they must first officially reach out to the department to share the report with us as i and i indicated earlier on that why don't you just pick report. up the phone and ask for a rep- for them to send you the report in fact no, no, they, no, they no, claim we, they've we, sent you the report anyway but be let's assume that it got lost in the mail somewhere why don't you just reach out and ask them no i, I for now i i say I, I can confirm that we have, we have received the report whether through uh, them directly or indirectly what is more important is that we have the within the report we have shared the report with our uh, colleagues in the provinces to make sure that they look into those cases that happen in their facilities in order to further investigate but you don't feel it's necessary to talk to the freedom front itself no it, it is necessary as soon as we uh, we, we establish where we feel that uh, the facts that the details that were found they, con- they contradict uh, the report we'll be able to uh, reach out to them but for now we, while we are studying the report uh, together with our provincial colleagues we are trying to get as much uh, details as possible so that we'll be, we'll be able to reach out to them Foster Mahali speaks for the Department of Health MoneyWeb at midday we are live at noon weekdays then up as a podcast goodbye to you and thank you for listening Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.